chapter uh, 3 this evening. If you're with us and you don't have a Bible this evening on our journey through the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave to them and get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hands so you can read along and follow along just in the way that you will uh, want to. So take advantage of that. While we're getting uh, to Ezra, chapter 3, I want to remind you, in case you weren't here this morning, we will be having our uh, Labor Day baptism and picnic tomorrow. So if you're a Christian and you've never been water baptized, we'll be baptizing tomorrow. And that uh, baptism will start at noon, followed by a picnic lunch that will be supplied and, and a great time of fellowship and all. So uh, there's a flyer out in the fellowship hall after the service to be able to get more information uh, related to that. We remember that... Uh, in terms of getting here to chapter 3 now, that after 70 years of captivity in Babylon, the Jews were granted permission by uh, King Cyrus, who was the king of Persia. Uh, Persia defeated uh, Babylon and brought an end to the Babylonian uh, Empire. Later on, the Persians would uh, unite with the Medes and become the Medo-Persian Empire. We're familiar with these terms. Uh, from Daniel's prophecy concerning the world-ruling empires that would lead up to the final uh, one. And so Cyrus granted permission uh, for uh, Israel to return to any one of the Jews that were in captivity to Babylon, return to Israel, and to rebuild the temple. And God had prophesied that Israel would be in captivity for 70 years and that they would then return uh, to the land. And every... and that, God kept that promise 100%. And and I'll tell you, it's wonderful to read the Bible and the promises of God and to realize that every one of his promises are just that sure as it relates to our lives. The policy of Cyrus in terms of when he took over what was essentially the Babylonian uh, empire We remember that the Assyrians and the Babylonians made a practice of when they would conquer a nation of deporting the native people and bringing in foreigners into the land in order to keep everybody a little destabilized. It was easy to hold control of the empire that way. Cyrus had a completely different philosophy on this. And his feeling was you allow these people to return to their native lands where they had been deported from and uh, that if you allowed them to do that, they would then be loyal because of the grace that you had shown to them. And so that was his philosophy. He was a very superstitious king. Most of them were in those days. And the idea was all of these different groups of people could return to their lands and uh, worship their various gods. His only uh, request was that he and his family would be placed on the various prayer lists. And so not everything's commendable about it, but this is why he allowed uh, so many people to return uh, to the land. And when he made that decree and allowed the return, we read last week that uh, somewhere close to 50,000 Jews, when you count the servants, took him up on the opportunity now to make the nine-month journey to Jerusalem from Babylon 
to then uh, build this temple. And now we pick it up in chapter 3. And when the seventh month had come, the seventh month upon arriving there in Jerusalem, and the children of Israel were in the cities, they'd spread out through the land a little bit, the people gathered together as one to Jerusalem. And uh, Jeshua, the son of Josedach, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of uh, Shetiel, and his brethren, they arose and they built the altar of uh, the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it was written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So this is a fascinating thing, and, and I would just kind of uh, encapsulate this event and with the words of a saying that we use today, first things first. So they've been sent to Jerusalem to build a temple. They're going to do that. But the first thing that Zerubbabel and the priests and the people do is they build the altar. The altar was uh, a, a uh, it was an altar and it was located outside of the temple in the courtyard of the temple. And it was where all of the sacrifices that were made to the Lord were offered to the Lord. And so the altar represented uh, the personal relationship uh, with, with God. And so they, uh, in the, so they come and they decide that they're going to build this altar uh, first of all. It's interesting that uh, when worship was restored at the temple area here in Jerusalem, before the temple was ever physically built. And, and the reason that they began with the building of the altar before they built the temple is the temple meant nothing apart from the worship of sacrifice. They had gotten into trouble and had gone into Babylonian captivity because they began to look at the temple as a good luck charm. And they, as prophet after prophet, would be sent by the Lord to speak to them and say, you guys are on the wrong side of God. You are disobeying God. You go to temple all week, every week, and you think because the temple stands here in the city of Jerusalem that you must still be okay with God and that God will never allow the Gentile nations to come in and conquer this land and destroy this temple. And what God did is he just lifted his spirit off of the temple and he departed and he allowed that temple to be completely destroyed because the temple meant nothing to him if it wasn't associated with the hearts of God's people in worship toward him. And so they had gone into captivity because they got things backwards. They didn't realize that the relationship is everything with God. And the way to keep a relationship uh, healthy is to maintain obedience. So when they come in and they start to offer these sacrifices before they even touch the temple, they're communicating to God, we get it. We understand that the relationship means everything. And without this relationship, you won't enjoy the temple at all. And to rebuild it will be just a waste of time because you'll be forced to abandon it again and allow it, allow it to be destroyed again. Now, that, that isn't a, a getting things backwards like that isn't something that was unique just to the Jews in the Old Testament. I think this is the very same lesson that Jesus spoke about in writing 
one of his seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, when he spoke to the church of Ephesus and they were they had had all kinds of Bible studies going on. They were absolutely intolerant of false doctrine. They served God to the point of exhaustion. And as Jesus just gives this entire long list of all of the good things about them, and you look at the, everything that was good about them, you say, uh, could you give me the address and telephone number of this church? I think I'm going to go there. And he says, but I have one thing against you. You've left your first love. You've moved away from the innocence and the intimacy and the honesty and transparency of the relationship we once had. And sometimes we read that related to the church of Ephesus and we don't tie it back uh, to the children of Israel. And what God was saying to the church of Ephesus was, listen, I've been there and done that. I've, I've already been through this so many times with my people, where they get this all backwards and they think it's doing all of these things and they don't know that what I really care about is the relationship. So Christian ministry service is very, very important, but he did not save us so that because he was lacking some physical labor on planet Earth. He saved us for relationship. He loves the relationship. You say, why would he love a relationship with me? I have no idea. I'm trying to figure it out related to my life. That's the mystery of it. But he does. And so they come in. They say, all right, altar is the first focus. Then we'll get to the temple. And that's what they were communicating to the Lord. And so they built that altar. They had to fight through a little bit of fear. Ever had any fear? In your life as a Christian? No, because that's carnal, and I know not to give prey to that. Well, so we won't spend any time on it then. But, you know, no step of faith is without an element of fear, because God calls us to do things that are beyond our own ability to do and, 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 and beyond our resources, and so there's going to be fear. So they begin this, they do the rebuilding of the altar even though fear had come upon them because of the people of these countries. And uh, in spite of the fear, they still set the altar on its bases, and then they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both morning and evening burnt offerings. So they're in a pretty tough spot. They've got 50,000 Jews have returned to the land of Israel. That place is just packed with foreigners. It's packed with idolaters. It's packed with Gentiles. It's packed with people that are not excited to see a group of Jews coming back to the land and then ultimately perhaps claiming the land to be their own. So they show up and they are upsetting the status quo. They're a very small population and, and, uh, and not a, necessarily uh, is everyone excited about what they've come to do. And, but to their credit, uh, though the fear would have incapacitated to them, them they had, God had called them to do this, and so this is what they did. And they began by offering the morning and evening burnt offerings, the burnt offerings representing consecration to God. So it's the first sacrifices God had received from the children of Israel in 70 years, from the area of the altar there in Jerusalem. And they began with the burnt offerings by saying, God, we just freshly surrender our lives to you and to your purposes. And God commanded that they would do it morning and evening because you cannot begin a day or end a day 
better than that with a fresh surrender of our life to him and to his purposes. And then they also kept the Feast of Tabernacles. As it is written, they arrived in the land, and then right around the corner of arriving in the land, the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, September, October of the year is when they got back into the land, built this altar and all, and then it was time for the Feast of Tabernacles. And so they kept that and they offered the daily burnt offerings in the number required by ordinance for each day. And afterwards they offered the regular burnt offerings and those for new moons and all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated and those of everyone who willingly offered a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord through the foundation of the temple, although the foundation of the temple had not been laid. The relationship means everything to God. Let me just speak to that one more time before we leave that, because it's so important. Our service to the Lord is vital. We cannot hear a well done, thou good and faithful servant from the mouth of the Lord to us individually without being a good and faithful servant. God has called each one of us as a Christian to accomplish some purpose for him in, in our pilgrimage. And, and there will always be that tension. There will always be that fight to get those two things turned around and all of a sudden the work becomes more important than the relationship the danger sign is is that for someone who's serving the lord and serious about it is they begin to look and say all right my day is absolutely jam-packed with so many things and in our service to the lord the in basket is always full Always full. That's just, there's more need than anyone can get to except for God. And so the tendency is to think, all right, I'm going to begin. I think I can knock out five or six of these things in the time that I would normally spend in my devotional life and my relationship side with God. And, and it's, a, it's a deception to move in that direction because now things are backwards and ultimately things crash and they burn. So it's good for us, all of us to hear. He saved us for relationship. That's what he loves most about our lives. And the service then follows as an expression of our love to him. And so they also gave money to the masons and to the carpenters uh, and food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. So now they've uh, rebuilt the altar, and now in earnest they begin to uh, uh, accumulate all of the resources they're going to need for the rebuilding of the temple. And it's interesting, as you read verse 7, it almost reads exactly like how Solomon got all of the materials for the original temple. Uh, he also uh, sent... Uh, uh, supplies to uh, to Lebanon in order for them to ship down logs and, and cedar wood, uh, bring it into Joppa, carry it over land to Jerusalem. And so uh, they I guess they didn't have any um, planes at that time to fly them into Jerusalem. 
And so it was the same old uh, method of handling things. Now, in the second month of the second year of their coming uh, to the house of God at Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, uh, Jeshua, the son of Josedach, and the rest of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come out of the captivity uh, to Jerusalem, they began work and they appointed the Levites from 20 years old above to oversee the work of the building of the house of the Lord. And then Jeshua, uh, his sons and brothers, uh, Cadmiel, with his sons and the sons of Judah, they arose as one to oversee those working on the house of God, the sons of Henadad with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. And, when the, and so the Levites, they being kind of like the deacons of the Old Testament, they were overseeing the construction project. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, so it's the same imprint that had been left. They lay a fresh foundation on that imprint and uh, they... They're not going to wait until the whole temple is built to celebrate. So we laid the foundation. They said, all right, let's celebrate uh, the Lord. And so the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of King David of Israel. And they sang responsively, responsively praising and giving thanks to the Lord. And here's what they sang. For he that is God is good and his mercy endures forever toward Israel. You can't hardly have a better song than that. Because the Lord is good and his mercy endures until 10 a.m. Every day in your life. And after that, you're on your own, buckaroo. Don't make a mistake. No, it's not. His mercy endures forever. And so they looked at this and they realized, man, we we don't even see the temple built yet, but we're laying the foundation. And the only thing we can ascribe this to is the goodness of God and the grace of God. These are people that were just looking for a chance to worship uh, the Lord. And so they did. And then all of the people, they shouted with a great shout. Can you do that in the sanctuary? Yes, you can, I guess, right there in the Bible. And then they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of, their, of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first temple. So these are really old guys. So I'm not putting anybody down tonight. But like if you're 90... Is there like a non-old word for 90? Is 90 the new 85? I don't know. In America, they would do that. Because other cultures, you just respect the age. But these are, these are men who, who remember in either their childhood or young adult life, they remember the temple, Solomon's temple. They go to Babylon in captivity for 70 years and they come back now. They, they make sure they're a part of that 50,000 coming back to rebuild this temple. And they come back and now they're witnessing this with their own eyes. They saw Solomon's temple and then now they see the foundation being laid to this new uh, uh, temple here. And the reaction is, is, is these older uh, 
Well, it says it right there. So what am I being all careful about? Old men who had seen the first temple, they began to weep with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy. So they looked at it. It was a bittersweet experience for them. Uh, Some people believe that when they saw this new foundation being laid and the materials that were being used for the building of this uh, second temple, that they began to weep because it it paled uh, so significantly in comparison to the beauty and the grandeur of Solomon's temple. And they looked and they said, oh, my, I remember Solomon's temple and we're replacing it with this. And so they wept. It could be. I'm not inclined entirely to that view, though I don't dismiss it entirely either. I think that it's possible that as they saw that temple going up in that place, they were reminded of the sin of their generation that had brought a destruction to the temple to begin with. And just 70 years of memories and all of this just begins to overwhelm them. You think about, and it can happen in our lives, but for them when they looked back and they saw how unnecessary it was for those 70 years of captivity to occur if they'd only been just simply obedient to the Lord. And they, they wept over the consequence of their sin and the sin of the nation. But at any rate, while they were crying, uh, many others shouted aloud for joy among the older and among the younger. And they shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout and the sound was heard afar off. So it is only proper that the shout of joy in celebration of the grace of God would always drown out uh, the weeping of regret over uh, the, the past, whether it's the nation of Israel or whether it has to do with an individual life. And the shout was so great, it was heard uh, afar off. In other words, it got everybody's <laughs> attention. Now, we're told in chapter 4 that when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of uh, the Lord God of Israel, that they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses, and they said to them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God just the way that you do, and we've sacrificed to him since the days of Israel, king of Assyria, who brought us here. We've been worshiping the God of Israel ever since we got deported from our land and brought all of our pagan gods, and we just mixed all of our paganism with the worship of your God, and so they felt they were, uh, you know, worshiping the Lord themselves. Now, it is interesting to notice that these men, as they come uh, to the children of Israel here, they are described as adversaries. You cannot do... A work for God. This is just a point in the sermon. All you got to do is just do something in obedience to God's word. And we will always discover that there are adversaries to that work. 
fact, one of the names of uh, of, uh, the, of the devil in the Bible is the fact that he's an adversary. He's a destroyer against us. And so it's a wonderful thing, and I think all of us should do it and, uh, and pray to the Lord even as we've sung tonight. Just say, Lord, I just surrender to you completely. I want you to do whatever you want to do in my life and then do it through my life. But when a person, I don't care where in the world, when a Christian makes that kind of commitment and sings that kind of a chorus and and, and as a prayer in spirit and truth to God, immediately you have adversaries that are going to come against you and you're going to get noticed. So they're doing God's work. And when you do God's work, you're going to get noticed by adversaries to God's work. So I want to be great in God's kingdom. All right. Part of the deal is the devil finds out what your name is. He knows your email address. He knows where you live. He knows your cell phone number. He's you got his attention now. That's just the way that it is. But it doesn't stop the work. But just the realization and uh, to where uh, when and to know, at least in our initial steps of faith and serving the Lord to realize, okay, there's going to be opposition. Everything isn't necessarily going to go smoothly. And then you serve the Lord for a while and then you get a little antsy when there isn't opposition. When everything's going smooth for a long period of time, are we doing something wrong here or is he building like a hydrogen bomb? That he's going to let loose, you know, one day and we're not going to even see it coming. God have the grace for that. But there's, there is that. Paul, I like it. And we've even mentioned it in recent weeks where uh, he spoke of the fact in, in his ministry. He said uh, an effectual door, an effective door has been opened up unto me. And there are many adversaries. That's always the way that it is. And so. They heard about all of this going on, the building of this temple, and so they're going to resist it. And it's very, very interesting that how they begin to uh, resist the rebuilding of the temple uh, uh, because their first, uh, the first method that they use against the children of Israel is the method of assimilation. There in verses two and three, and uh, so. And assimilation is a very, very effective form of opposition to God's worth, both then and today. And here's where they're coming in. They're saying, listen, this is a good thing that you're doing here. And you shouldn't do this good thing all by yourself. We all worship the God of the Bible. Sure, we worship a hundred other gods as well. But we're not disrespectful to your God. And so why don't you allow us? to be a part of the rebuilding of this temple. And so that was the proposition that they were making to them. And we remember the history here of how this people came about when the children of Israel had been displaced from the land by the Babylonians or the northern kingdom of Israel displaced by the Assyrians. And then the Assyrians sent all of these foreign people into the land. They brought all of their gods into the land. The Lord allowed them to be attacked by lions 
And they sent word back to Assyria and they said, listen, we're in this land of Israel. We don't know anything about the gods. All we know is we're being eaten by lions over here. And all God was doing and allowing that to happen was to communicate to the people that you defeated my people, but you didn't defeat me. So they said, send us a priest that can tell us how to get along with the God of the Jews. And so uh, a, a Jewish priest was sent. There were no good priests in Israel at the time. But he went and he told them, all right, this is how you uh, can continue to worship all of your gods and, and then wor- worship the Lord as well. And this group of people uh, it, during the 70 year a Babylonian captivity, these foreign uh, Gentiles, idolatrous Gentiles. Then they began to marry and intermix with the Jews and a new race of people came out of it uh, that was described at the time of Jesus as the Samaritans. But this was their thinking and this was the offer that they're making. And the idea that they had in their mind was that everyone who believes in God is basically the same and we can all be involved. Can't we all just get along and can't we all just be a part of the same uh, work together? So you believe in the God of Islam. You believe in the Mormon God. You believe in the Jehovah Witness God. You believe in the Christian God and the Jewish God and the Hindu God. But we're really we're all worshiping the same God and all paths lead to heaven. And the main thing is that we just be good people and follow whatever God we choose or however we understand him uh, to be. So they said, why can't we be a part of the construction? We have respect for your God as well. The problem with the offer that they're making and uh, the reason I make a bit of a big deal about this is this is something that goes on all of the time in the culture. It's a dominant culture of religion. Uh, by people who know nothing about religion, is that basically all religions are the same. Do you see that bumper sticker, coexist, and it's got the Muslim symbol and the Christian symbol and the Jewish symbol and so forth uh, on it. And and the idea, well, I'll I'll divorce myself from the bumper sticker, but the idea, the prevailing idea is, is that basically we are all worshiping the same God. You see this continually spoken on television, even on the radio, where people are saying, well, the, the Muslims worship the same God as the Jews and the Christians because we're monotheistic. We we only believe in one God. They're called monotheistic religions. Uh, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. Well, that's a person that has never, doesn't know anything about Judaism, doesn't know anything about Christianity, and doesn't know anything about Islam. Islam is mutually exclusive in its truths related to Judaism or Christianity. Hinduism is the same way. And all the other religious systems. So when somebody comes along and says, listen, they're all basically worshiping the same God, and it's the same moral code, you know you're dealing with someone who has never taken the time to investigate any of the religions because the religions are mutually exclusive. They cannot all be true because they claim to be true and and what they claim to be true contradicts what the other religion believes and claims to be true. So you can't have it all the way around. But this was the way their religious, they had worked this out in their mind. Uh, I don't know what kind of hurdles you get through in in order to do that. The second problem with this uh, attempt of opposing the work through assimilation is that, uh, and the offer that they make here is that uh, we are not, 
is the whole issue of appearances. If all the people of Jerusalem watched all of the idolaters of these other religions help build the temple, then they would naturally assume that all of these religions are the same and that all of the gods of these religions are exactly the same. And, and so there's no difference between the God of the Jews and the false gods uh, of these other people. And what that would have done is created a terrible confusion in the one area a person must not be confused about. And that is in the area of God, how to have a relationship with him, how to receive the forgiveness of sins and to have everlasting life. And so this is the offer that's being made. But if they had taken them up on the offer and they could have used the help. It would have produced tremendous confusion in the minds of people that watched that, that temple uh, go up. As we're going to see in just a few moments, when you make a stand against that kind of person and that kind of uh, ecumenical movement, uh, you'll quickly find out that those people are not as ecumenical as they appear. They will oppose you uh, bitterly. All you have to do as a Christian is this. Determine never to compromise related to just one declaration of Jesus concerning himself. John 14, when he said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man comes to the father, but by me. Forget everything else. Make a stand there and never deviate from that truth. Be faithful to it. Proclaim that. And you're going to find yourself in as much trouble as these people are going to find themselves in in just a few moments. People are not as ecumenical as they as they uh, make themselves out to be. And Jesus warned that 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 would uh, be the case. I think one of the things that is uh, well, I'm getting ahead of myself here a little bit. On Let's see the response to uh, what happens here. So they make the offer here uh, to get involved. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the heads of the rest and the rest of the heads of the father's houses of Israel, they said to them, you may do nothing, nothing with us to build a house for our God, for we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Now, that's strong leadership. That's very, very strong leadership. They slam the door on the help. They come and say, well, listen, aren't we all? And can't we just and hug and, and come by and the whole deal and, and gather around the fire and eat s'mores together in communion and, and uh, just get along on the whole thing? And they look at it and they say, no. You can't help us on this temple. You can't be a part of this uh, work. And there needs to be that kind of strength of leadership, the body of Christ today, or we'll get absorbed into everything else that's being worshipped in the world. Some people don't like conflict. They don't like making a stand. They don't like the problems that it raises. Well, then don't be a leader in the body of Christ because you've got to make this kind of stand. And you're going to be misunderstood when you do that. Or even when you lead in your own home, that's going to be the case. And they decline the offer on the basis of two things. 
Number one, God called us to rebuild this temple. He did not call us and every idolater in Jerusalem to build this temple. God knew who he wanted to be involved in the building of that temple, and he only wanted hands that loved him and worshipped him to rebuild that temple. And God can choose who he wants to be involved in his work. So they said no on the basis of the fact that God hasn't chosen you to do this. And number two, on the basis of the decree of King Cyrus, the king of Persia, he commanded us to come here and to rebuild the temple. He didn't command us to come and rebuild the temple with pagan help in the land. And so in a very firm way, but a polite way, respectful way, they just slam the door on the offer in order for the identity of God, the God of the Bible, the true and the living God, for who he is and the uniqueness of what he is, not to be confused in the minds of people as being just one of a million other gods, or that he was anything like all of the pagan gods that were being worshipped. And I'm not an old wise owl. I'm just old. But I've been able to do this for a little while as being a pastor. And the toll that it takes, the personal price that any leader of any Christian church, where you look at a church in this community or anywhere around the world, and that church stays on track for a year, for two years, for five years, for ten years, for twenty years, for thirty years, You've got somebody standing up the way that these men did in order that that church does not get absorbed by the world around it. And it almost wears you out having to say no to this thing and that thing and this new idea and this ecumenical thing. And then why can't you join this thing? But yeah, there's this baggage that's associated with it. And to save their life, they cannot see the implications of aligning the reputation of God with this thing over here. And they can't understand why I say no. And then the criticism that comes With all of it. I'm glad to do it. I I don't want a pity party. I don't want cards sent to me. I'm just saying that if you do that, that's just the way that it is. I'm not talking about Christians who have a difference of opinion over when the rapture is going to occur or related to spiritual gifts. I'm talking about crazy stuff that really confuses the minds of people about our God and about what he calls us to and what it means to follow him, and then compromising that, compromising the word of God so I can then join with this other thing that is happening that's going to be destructive for the kingdom of God, but I do it because it's easier on me. Because I don't have to take any flack over that. That's why I'm encouraged when I see this kind. I'm no great anything. But I try to do what I do. But I'll tell you, it wears on you. And that's why it's important. I know I'm prayed for in this body. And I know our leadership and our pastors are prayed for. And our broader leadership in this body is prayed for. I thank you for your prayers. 
because it just it wears and it wears and it wears and the offers are always coming in on different kinds of things and and uh, and to take the stand against it and there's we're just human you know and you just look and say all right I give up I'm just I'm not going to be the bad guy anymore but you got to be the bad guy so to speak sometimes to protect God's reputation and so they said no they slammed the door and then the people of the land they tried to discourage the people of Judah and they troubled them in the building. So they, the door got closed on them, and then they showed their true colors. They tried to discourage the people. They troubled them, you know, kind of physically threatening them. And then the worst thing of all, they hired counselors. Translation, they hired lawyers. I'm putting you down if you're a lawyer, but you know, you know the jokes that go around. They're almost as bad as the jokes about pastors. So they hire these lawyers now. They're going to take these things to court in order to, to begin their opposition now in a different kind of way. And they, and they hired counselors against them to frustrate their purposes all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So they, they said, all right, we're going to dig in and we're going to fight you every inch of the way to keep you from building that temple. And so verses 1 through 5 is a description of the um, opposition against the Jews for the building of that temple. In verse 6 of chapter 4, all the way through uh, to verse 23, we have what is known as a parenthetical passage in the Bible. And a parenthetical passage is where you're going through the Bible and it's chronology. This happened in the chronology of time, and then this happened, and then this happened, and this happened. And when God wants to put in a parenthetical passage, it's like he puts a pause on uh, the CD. And then he says, before we continue the chronology, I want to tell you a few things. Because I want to elaborate on a couple of things Related to what's going on here. You see it in the book of Revelation more than once. Where God is going along and he's talking about this and that and all. And then all of a sudden he'll hit the pause and say, let me tell you a little bit more about spiritual Babylon. Or commercial Babylon. Or let me tell you a little bit more about what's happening related to these seals of the persecution against uh, Christians that are saved during the tribulation. And, and so the book has a lot of parenthetical passages in it. So when we get into verse 6. All the way through the rest of the chapter, here's what you need to realize. He stops the chronology in verse 5, doesn't pick up the chronology again until verse 24 at the end of the chapter. Because in what we're going to read in verses 6 through 23, this is an opposition that occurs long after the temple was built. This is an opposition that occurs to the rebuilding of the walls in the city of Jerusalem, uh, uh, later related to the times of preceding Nehemiah going to Jerusalem to do that. But he puts it in here as this parenthetical passage just to give us an idea of the kind of opposition that the Jews were facing to being obedient to God's word. And so in the reign of Ahasuerus, uh, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. So they had a lawyer put a thing together, and they're doing this, and they're doing that, and they had it delivered to Ahasuerus. And there's no record uh, that it made a dent at all. Ahasuerus, uh, uh, no record that he moved upon it, and so their attempt was uh, ineffectual. 
And then they did have some success in the days of Artaxerxes. Again, not related to the temple, but uh, to the building of Israel. And in the days of Artaxerxes, also uh, Bishlam, uh, Mithridath, Tabel, and the rest of their companions, they wrote to Artaxerxes, uh, king of Persia. So this is, this is years later. It's not the same group that we were reading about, uh, Tatnai and his, his friends. And so they wrote uh, a letter, and it was written in the Aramaic script and translated into the Aramaic language. And Rehum, the commander, of, and Shimshai, the scribe, they wrote a letter against Jerusalem to King Artaxerxes in this fashion. From Rehum, the commander, Shimshai the scribe, and the rest of their companions, representatives of uh, the Dinaites, the uh, Afar Shefkites, uh, don't quote me on that if you're on Jeopardy, uh, the Tarpalites, the people of Persia, and Erech, and Babylon, and Shushan, and uh, the Dehavites, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and the noble uh, Osnapper took captive and settled in the cities of Samaria and the remainder uh, beyond the river and so forth. So you know a lawyer's involved in this letter. And basically, this letter is just a study in manipulation. So that what they're writing this letter and they're dropping all of these names and they're basically saying, hey, listen, it isn't one or two of us have a beef with these Jews in Jerusalem. This is a this is a um, uh, what's the what's a court? What's a, a suit that's brought on the basis of many, many people? What do they call that? OK, class action suit. Thank you. You all said it, but some of you said it all at the same time. Well, not exactly at the same time, so I couldn't hear it to you, so I commend you all. So it's kind of like a class action suit, and the idea is, hey, there's trouble over here. There isn't just one or two of us to have a beef with this thing. There's a lot of people that are upset with this. Well, politicians and kings don't like to know that there's instability over anything, so he's being set up. And so this is the copy of the letter that they sent to him. To King Artaxerxes, from your servants, the men of the region beyond the river, and so forth. Let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you uh, have come to us at Jerusalem, and they're building the rebellious and evil city, and they're finishing, notice, its walls and repairing the foundations. And let it be known to the king that if this city is built and the walls completed, they will not pay tax tribute or custom and the king's treasury will be dis diminished. <laughs> they know politicians. Listen, you let this happen. Taxes, tax revenue is going to go down for the government. And, and so they, now they've got his attention doubly so. And now because we receive support from the palace, they're government employees. So they, they, they're supported by the taxes. So they said, all right, because we are, uh, we feel it was not proper for us uh, to see the king's dishonor, and therefore we have sent and we inform the king of all of these matters. In order that a search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers, and you will find in the book of the records and know that this city is a rebellious city, harmful to kings and provinces, and that they have incited sedition within the city in former times, for which cause this city was destroyed, we inform the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls are completed, the result will be that you will have no dominion beyond the river. Talk about the use of fear in a letter. Oh, what am I going to do? 
Even a king gets upset about this, and he did. And so the king said an answer. This is Artaxerxes' response. To Rehum, the commander, to Shimshai, the scribe, and to the rest of their companions who dwell in Samaria, and to the remainder beyond the river, peace, and so forth. The letter which you sent to us has been clearly read before me. And I gave the command, and a search has been made, and it was found that this city in former times has revolted against kings, and rebellion and sedition have been fostered in it. And there have also been mighty kings over Jerusalem who have ruled over all the region beyond the river, and tax, tribute, and custom were paid to them. And now give the command to make these men cease, that this city may not be built until the command is given by me, Take heed now that you do not fail to do this. Why should damage increase to the hurt of the kings? And when the copy of, the, of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rahum, uh, Shimshai, uh, the scribe, and their companions, uh, they went up in haste to Jerusalem against the Jews, and by force of arms they made them cease. So this, was, this is an example of how determined the population was to stop uh, any movement by the Jews to be obedient to the Lord and the rebuilding of these different things and reestablishing themselves in the land. Back into verse 24, back into the chronology now. Thus the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, it ceased and it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius, uh, king of Persia. And so uh, their opposition to um, this uh, rebuilding uh, of the temple by these people. Uh, they were successful in, in bringing that work uh, to a stop. And then in um, uh, uh, chapter 5, we pick things up. And, and the, the, at this point, as we begin chapter 5, there's like a 15-year gap between the end of chapter 4 and chapter 5. And so the work on the temple has been stopped for 15 years. And uh, so the temple, the foundation is laid. It's covered with weeds. Everything's growing up around it. It's the picture of abandonment and, and uh, lack of care. And the fact that this temple, God had sent them to build the temple, the fact that this temple was in the condition that it was, the unbuilt condition that it was in, it was not only a bad reflection upon the Jews for failing to rebuild the temple, but it was a very bad reflection upon God. Everything that we do is a reflection upon God. So when they stopped building the temple because of some amount of harassment by the locals, and they did not push through because God had told them to do something, and if they had done it, God was going to put favor on their lives to accomplish it, as we're going to see in just a moment. But they pulled back, and with just a little bit of resistance, they pulled off of the project. They said, there's nothing we can do. Look at this. It's an immovable object. We can't continue this. It's, it's too dangerous. And they pulled back. And the reflection that it was upon God was this. Well, look at the Jews. The God of the Jews sends them to do things that he can't give them the power to finish. And so it was a reflection upon God. And the gods of all of these other people that were resisting the work must be greater than the God of the Jews because they brought a, work, a stop to the work of the God of the Jews. So it's a very poor reflection upon God. God has a solution to that. And they're called prophets. And so he sent the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edu, prophets, 
They prophesied to the Jews who were in Jerusalem and in, uh, in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. And so they come on the scene, these prophets, they prophesied to the children of Israel. And the, the, the word prophesy means to speak forth. To prophesy for God means to speak forth for God. It is God speaking through a, a message through an individual Paul writes concerning prophecy in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He said, he who prophesies speaketh unto men edification and exhortation and comfort. A true prophecy from God will either build up or it will stir up or it will lift up. That's what it accomplishes in God's people. So sometimes God will prophesy something uh, through a prophet even today. There are such things as prophets in the body of Christ. He will speak through them, and sometimes it will be a message of encouragement or a message of comfort. Well, the message he had for the Jews at this point in time was a message of stirring up, a kind of an exhortive one. And we wonder, well, what in the world did they prophesy? Uh, you know, uh, Haggai and Zechariah, it's not listed here what they prophesied. But all we need to do is then turn to the book of Haggai and turn to Zechariah, and we'll see exactly what it is that they were prophesying uh, to the children uh, of Israel. And the, basically the message that they were giving to the children of Israel was, get back to work. <laughs> you think, I mean, you, sometimes we think we're the only ones that say that to our kids. God's got to say it to his kids too. Get back to work. So he sends these two prophets, their human alarm clocks. Everybody's gone to sleep spiritually. And he sends them to wake them up and said, excuse me, did I send some people here to build the temple in Jerusalem or didn't I do that? Am I mistaken here? Did somebody forget about that for the last 15 years? Does that matter to anybody while you're building all your houses and all your paneling in your houses and all your luxury and all of these kind of things? Because you've convinced yourself as Haggai spoke to them. Oh, no, this isn't a time. We need to just get along with everybody here. We don't need to antagonize the native population. We're only 50,000 people. It doesn't matter what the promises of God are. And so the best that we can hope for is just just integrate into society, uh, begin to get good jobs within the culture, build night houses, uh, begin to establish a nice larger population base among the people, and maybe in 400 years we'll be a majority and then we can build the temple that God sent us to do. And so that's what, that's what they're doing. What God had called them to do now completely crowded out by other things. And so Haggai comes on the scene and says, listen, uh, you need to rethink this. He said it a lot better than I just said it. But that's basically uh, what he said uh, uh, to them. Now, clearly, as you read the book of Haggai, uh, clearly the implication of it is that the children of Israel, when they were opposed by their enemies, uh, they yielded too easily. When the resistance came, they were supposed to fight through that resistance. They were, that resistance, God did not intend them to quit on that level of resistance. He had given them a work to do, and he had given them promises related to that work, and they were to do that work no matter what the resistance was until they saw God be faithful to his promise until that work was accomplished. And, and so they 
they've met that resistance. And uh, instead of fighting through that resistance, they said, well, why can't we just all get along, you know, kind of a deal. And they began to get comfortable uh, with uh, building a nice, comfortable life for themselves in Jerusalem and, and uh, carry on uh, their life in a, in a temple-less uh, Jerusalem. And here's what it makes me wonder, and I think it's an important lesson from the passage. It makes us wonder how much of God's work gets stopped in this manner. God gives us a command to do something. We take a very significant step in being faithful to that command that he gives to us. Then we come up against very significant opposition to being faithful to what God has called us to do. Might even be spiritual warfare. And then the person abandons God's call and then they make themselves as comfortable as they can in the course of their three score and ten. And then they die and they go to heaven. Problem is, is there's no well done, now good and faithful servant on the other side of that because you can't hear that without being faithful. And they give up too easily. Sometimes we can give up too easily. Perhaps the Lord would speak to one or two of us this evening in this regard concerning the call that he has on your life. Gave you a call. Something to do. You hit opposition from who knows where you know where. And you backed off from that calling. And you jettison it. And you settle in now to 15 Even 15 plus years where that calling is just a distant memory now. And now I'm just going to get along with everybody, live out my life and go to heaven. Here's the problem with that. The gifts and the callings of God, Paul wrote, are without repentance. So if God called you and me to do something 15 years ago and we stopped because it was hard to do that, that doesn't mean that calling has stopped. That call to do that work continues to this day in your life into this room. It's still there. And you still have an obligation under the weight of Zechariah or under the weight of Haggai for him to come in and say, wake up. Didn't I call you to do something some number of years ago? You quit way prematurely. And I've still got that call upon your life, and I still want you to take the step of faith that's required to be faithful to me in doing what I've called you to do. The gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. And so they don't go away just because we try to ignore uh, ignore them for the rest uh, of our, our lives. And so this was the message, and I'll tell you, they got the message. I don't know how much further we're going to get tonight, but... Let me just say this uh, concerning the gift of the prophet in God's work, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. There is the office of a prophet in uh, Christianity, the body of Christ. There's the gift of prophecy that God gives to individual people when he chooses to give it. The difference between someone who operates in a gift of prophecy and one who is a prophet is that the one who is a prophet is also 
has an official calling upon their lives. That's a, that's a that's a gift that they that they have. Um, they have a formal office within the church, so to speak. And I think that if I were to look at the body of Christ as a whole today, and I I were to uh, assess, and I and I am, am, am very hesitant to do that. But if I were to look at it with a heart of love and, and be constructive, I would say the greatest need that we have in the body of Christ, it, it relates to the office and the gift of a prophet. One who rises up and stands up among God's people, stands up and then declares edification uh, exhortation and comfort to us is God's people, where it stirs our heart to action. I remember reading a book on revival by Leonard Ravenhill. Leonard Ravenhill knew not, there wasn't a shade of gray in his life. Everything was black and white. You listen to anything by Leonard Ravenhill. But he wrote in his book on revival and he asked the great question, where is the prophet that will move the prophets? And I've heard it in my Christian life. I have watched men and I've listened to men, not just where God has spoken to them through a message, where they're operating in the, a gift of prophecy operating through them. That's wonderful. I love that. But someone who is an actual prophet to God's people. And the power of that office and that calling. The problem is, every one of them I've known has fallen. There's something maybe about the office that is so powerful, it's so strong, it, it, it so resonates with people, the voice of God so pure, so beautiful, that somehow pride gets in there and goofiness and then sin gets involved in the whole thing and then it ends up being a mess. And plus, it's not easy to be a prophet. You read yourself, God, I want, to, I want to be a prophet. Oh, read Jeremiah. Read Lamentations. It'll cure you. Except for the fact, remember Jeremiah, he's a prophet for the Lord. He prophesied for 40 years and without a single recorded convert. 40 years! You think you're discouraged? Forty years he prophesied, not to pagans, to God's people. Couldn't get any of them to repent. Not a single convert recorded. Finally, he comes to a point in his ministry where he says to God, he says, God, that's it. I quit. I am not going to speak for you. Not one more time. Not one more word. Forget about it. Tap, tap. No erases. This is my official resignation. Don't ask me to reconsider. He quit as thoroughly as a man could quit. What did God do to him? Made his word fire in the man's bones until he could not keep silent without speaking for God. And I just say this for this reason, is that I think there is a, a very, very high price that men pay to be a prophet and to answer that calling and women pay to be prophetesses in the body of Christ. But it's legitimate and it's real 
And you better keep your head screwed on straight and walk close to God every day if God has that calling upon your life. But we need your voice. And whether it's in this room or wherever this message goes, we need that voice. I look at the world that we live in today. I certainly look at the United States. We live in today the craving for leadership. The craving for someone to get up and say what everyone is thinking and knows needs to be done and to say it and then lead in that direction. It's so strong you can taste it. But the same thing is true in the body of Christ because the body of Christ, not entirely, but in a very large degree, we're conformed by the culture that's around us. And we're so careful about who's going to get offended, who's going to get upset, who is this, who is that. What's it going to mean to nickels and noses, as they say, to attendance and to the offerings? And all of these complications come into the thinking. And then we turn around and we ask ourselves, where's the leadership? Where's the men or women that get up and they speak what God wants to speak to a generation and to a world, no matter what the cost is or whatever happens to them for doing that? And I'll tell you, we need it. I was reading World Magazine a number of months ago. You talk about how, how pummeled we are by political correctness. And the concern to not be seen as intolerant or dogmatic. Truth is dogmatic. Truth is intolerant of what is a lie. That's just the way it goes. And everyone can't be right. But I was reading in World Magazine. I will finish with this rant, by the way. But it was a very fascinating quote. really got my attention. And the guy was talking about the younger generation, not talking about teenagers, but 20s and 30s, about younger men and women in the United States of America who are prospering and doing very well. Not just materially, but talking about doing better than average materially for sure. But talking about relationally, the richness of life and this kind of things. And he said, but his observation concerning this age group in the United States of America is they don't preach what they practice. All my life, I've heard the saying the other way around. Where it says, well, he doesn't practice what he preaches. There's something wrong with that. But there's also something wrong with practicing what we don't preach. What are the characteristics of these younger People who are doing very, very well, despite the condition of the world. They work hard, he said. They believe in marriage and they work hard to keep their marriages together. And he went through just a number, a list of four or five things that are common denominators for this kind of quality of life that was being produced. But when he says they do not preach what they practice, the idea is they are so badgered in the culture 
so worried about making anybody else feel bad by their success or to get up and in some way identify the fact that the life that we are living comes out of these things that are very, very biblical. It just tells you people are being pounded into submission by the political correctness and the fear of speaking what everybody knows is true. So the importance will stop here. It's a terrible place to stop in the progression. But I am out of time by five minutes, and so I'll stop there. But I didn't want to leave it without speaking to us and speaking to the hearts of men and women, whatever our age might be, and the fact that there is this need for the prophet to speak and to wake not wake up the body of Christ, to wake me up. I can fall asleep like everybody else and just go through the motions in this calling. And so the importance of the voice of the prophet, to have God exercise that gift of prophecy through our lives as he sees fit. But again, I talk specifically about that office. God, give us more and more men and women who have that kind of voice coupled with the boldness to then speak what God has to say. So we'll stop there and we'll pick things up in verse 2 of chapter 5 next time. Let's stand together now and we'll pray. Lord, we pray for our lives tonight. And to any degree that we're being conformed by this world in this way, being intimidated and being badgered into silence, Lord, whether in our calling or whether in private conversation, wherever it might be, Lord, if you look at our individual lives and we are biting our tongue in preventing the voice of your Holy Spirit coming through our lives in a very important time in human history. We just repent of that tonight and we confess it as a sin of unfaithfulness to you. And we pray, Lord, as we just surrender our lives fresh and anew to you at the end of this service now. We say, Lord, we ask that you would take our lives and use them as you see fit in this area as well. To speak, Lord, for you, fearlessly for you. And to realize, Lord, that the world needs to hear your voice more than ever in human history. And so help us, Lord, to be that Zechariah and that Haggai in the places that you have placed us. Help us, Lord, not to fall asleep in this age that we live in and all of the seduction of materialism and all of the seduction of entertainment and all of the things that are around us until your calling is pushed out of the way and we're comfortable building whatever it might be and comfortable forsaking your calling and I pray and we pray for one another, Lord, in this room 
that if there is even one man or one woman that you have a call on their life and they know that to be true and they know tonight under the weight of your word that they stopped way too prematurely, they did not fight through the opposition of the spiritual warfare to watch the miracle that you were going to do through their lives, we pray that you speak to them tonight, that that calling is still on the table, that they are to take that mantle up this evening, and they are to now finish what you called them to do, however delayed they might be in doing that work. And Lord, we pray that you give them a great boldness, give them wisdom, and give them the strength to do it. Thank you for your word, all of the things that it does in us, Lord. We're grateful for it. We thank you for our time in your word this evening, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.